All right, so we are starting a new year and we're starting a new series. And uh, people requested to learn Basalagani, even though Basalagani, as I'll give the history, is learned a little bit later. But let's see if we can learn it in depth. If this works, we'll do this for a few weeks and we'll take it from there. So this week we don't need a book. I'm going to get booklets for everyone. Yeah, we don't need a book yet. But let me give a little bit of a, and welcome, a little bit of a brief history. Welcome. Yeah, okay. Of, of the Mimer. The, the previous Rebbe who came to the United States in 1940 was physically not that well. And as time went on, he had what we know of, he had MS, he had a stroke or more. And from 1945 onwards, one of the functions of a Rebbe, which is to teach Hasidus, to say Hasidus, and this is, let's say, this is the highest level of Torah teaching that a Chabad Rebbe would share. That was something that the previous Rebbe, at least from our knowledge, was no longer able to do. What happened during the last five, six years of his physical life is that Chabad Hasidic discourses that he gave, that he innovated many years prior, that were written down but never shared with the public. Because when a Rebbe teaches, many times he would just write it, and many times it would not go out to the public. Or even if the Rebbe would share something orally, and people would transcribe it, not always was it properly decimated, was it probably spread around. Now today everything is different because of technology, printing is cheap, and the means of communication, and we're living in such a different world. The Friedrich Rebbe had many Maimadim that he had said or written in his earlier years. He became a Rebbe in 1920. So our Rebbe, not yet Rebbe, was, was the one involved in choosing such older discourses that were previously not known or not properly known. Sometimes there would be modifications made to them, whether the previous Rebbe made it, whether the Rebbe made it, we don't know. And it would be given out. The Friedrich Rebbe was unable to speak clearly. There were some Fabrengens, but even people who went to those Fabrengens, if you were not familiar with him, you push it, would not understand what the Rebbe was saying. I know that my father and uncle had this chus of having a few private audiences with him. And my father clearly remembers how behind the Friedrich Rebbe, who was always on a wheelchair, even in his office, they would wheel him to a seat. He would have a few secretaries. One of them would be in the room. And when the Rebbe would speak, the secretary would right away repeat what the Rebbe is saying. Because if you were not familiar with the Rebbe, you mamish would not understand because of the strokes that he had. He couldn't speak in a way that for us it came out clear. So the way that my modem would come out, instead of the Rebbe saying it, is that it would be printed. Printing then, even pamphlets, were, it, was a, it was something that you needed to do and it would be given out on 770 and mailed out to the rest of the world. That year, 1950, turned out to be that Yutzvat fell out on Shabbos. The Friedrich Rebbe passed away Shabbos morning right before 8 a.m. The Friedrich Rebbe was not well for a long time, but it wasn't that his health was declining and then people thought he might pass away. The doctor said that it's a miracle that he's living for a long amount of time. 
And if you are familiar, if you had a grandparent like that, some people, they're not well, and the doctors say, we don't know how long they have, and they live one year, and they live two years, they live three years, when they pass away, it's a shock. The passing of Friedrich Rebbe was a shock. There was nothing that happened that indicated he's about to pass away. The Friedrich Rebbe, prior to Yutzvat Shabbos, decided to give out four Hasidic discourses that really, it was one discourse that was divided into two, into four sections. What were the four? The Friedrich Rebbe's grandmother, Rebbe Tzernifka's yard site, is on Yutzvat. The Friedrich Rebbe's grandmother raised him for many years because the Friedrich Rebbe's father, the Rebbe, while being a Rebbe, was not well for many long extended periods of time. There were times that per doctor's order, orders, he needed to be by himself. By himself means not even with his only child. He moved out of the house. At times his wife joined with him, Rebetzin Stern Nesara. But the Friedrich Rebbe spent, I think from, from eight until 11, but a couple of young years, important years, he grew up in the home of his grandmother, Rebetzin Rivka. So just there's a very strong bond between Rebetzin Rivka and the Friedrich Rebbe. He writes many times that all of the Hasidic stories and the history he heard from his grandmother. She passed away on Yutzvat, and the Friedrich Rebbe, to mark the yard site of his grandmother, gave out the first section of the Basa Lagani Mimer. The word Basa Lagani are the opening words of the Mimer. But really, the Friedrich Rebbe or the Rebbe prepared already for my mother. Everyone had five chapters, total of 20 chapters. So one was for Yud Shvat, the yard site of his grandmother. Yud Gimel Shvat is the yard site of his mother. She already passed away in the United States. She's buried near the oil, Rebbe Tzenstern Nasara. And um, then he gave out the next five chapters for Purim. And he already prepared to give out the final five chapters for Beis Nisan, which is the yard site of his father, the Rebbe Rashab. The Maimer was a Maimer that originally was given out in 1923. And it was the same exact Maimer. Again, you never know. Could be there were very small modifications. It's a lengthy Maimer. Turned out that even though the Mimer came out for Yutzvat, for the yard site of his grandmother, the Friedrich Rebbe passed away on Yutzvat. What came out on Yutzvat was five chapters, but the Friedrich Rebbe prepared all 20 chapters. Yutzvat, Yud Gimel Shvat, Purim, and Beis Nissen. And the Rebbe considered this Mimer to be the final will and testament of the Friedrich Rebbe. And not the five chapters, but the entirety of the 20 chapters. Aside of him considering this mimer to be the final will and testament, now Baruch Hashem, we're speaking here to very young people, the ones online, the ones uh, in, in live. When people get older, the final will and testament is something very significant. This is the final thing a person would write, leaving his or her mark in the world. It's very significant. Aside of that, our Rebbe, who assumed officially to be the Lubavitcher Rebbe the next year, which is in 1951, or in Tavshin Yud Aleph, what the Rebbe continued to do until 1988, including 1988, up until when his wife passed away, the Rebbetzin passed away, is that on the yard site of the previous Rebbe, on Yutzvat, he would have a fabrengen, a lot of Torah was shared, a lot of songs were sung, but the mimer that the Rebbe would say would always be this mimer, 
he would recap the mimer up until where he was up to. Every year he covered a chapter. And then, normally the maimodim would be very long. He would focus in on the chapter of the year. No one realized that the first year. So, you know, the Friedrich Rebbe said a maimer, and he recapped, he made a synopsis of the whole maimer, which is a big thing to make a synopsis, and he focused on the first chapter. Tavshin Yud Beis, he made another recap, and then he focused on chapter 2. Tavshin Yud Gimel on chapter 3. And people realized that this is a pattern that never stopped up until the passing of his wife. Now, the maimer only has 20 chapters. So after 20 years, in year 1970, he finished focusing on the 20th final chapter. No one knew what will be in 1971. Well, 1971 was a huge year. Just to share the history behind the Mimer, in 1971, which was 20 years since the passing of the Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Rebbe started to write a Sefer Torah that he called the Sefer Torah of Mashiach. He says, Mashiach is going to come. We would like to greet Mashiach with the Sefer Torah that was written for Mashiach. How great is that? The Friedrich Rebbe began writing that Sefer Torah. He didn't write it. He commissioned the writing of, and he, it, when he passed away, they stopped writing it. So the, the Rebbe said that they should finish writing that Sefer Torah for the 20th yard site of the Friedrich Rebbe. And it was a big, it was a big year. So just, there was a lot going on over there. The, the Rebbe began again chapter one, cycle number two, so 1972, chapter number two. 1973, chapter number three. That would have finished in year 1990. That would have been chapter number 20. If the Rebetzin passed away a few weeks after Yudshvat, the Rebetzin's yard site is Chav Be'i Shvat, 12 days after Yudshvat. From her passing and on, there were major changes that the Rebbe made, including that the, we did not have weekday Fabrengans, all of the videos that you see of the Rebbe sitting in front of a microphone was before the passing of the Rebetzin, including that the Rebbe generally stopped saying my modem, which also meant that the Rebbe did not say a mimer for the last, for the last two chapters. So we almost have two chapters. We have two my modem for each chapters. This year, Tavshim Pei Beis will be will be chapter number 12. The fourth time we're learning chapter number 12 because the first time chapter number 12 was 1962, but then 1982, then 2000, and um, am I making a mistake here? No, 2002. Um, 2000 and 2022 because Yud Shvat, uh, yeah, I got, not, we're not 2021. It's going to be, Yud Shvat will be already 2022. It's going to be January uh, 2022. So we'll be correct. So this year is chapter number 12. Every 20 years. Every 20 years. 2002. 2002, and now we're 2022. So correct, correct. Very good. Learn the same thing that was written in 1950. But we learn very good. Every year, aside of the last two years, we have two dis- discourses that the Rebbe gave for that year's chapter. This is real Chabad culture. Now, most people begin focusing on the, on the Basilagani Yutas Kislev, giving themselves not two months, but almost two months to learn both discourses. And I think it's okay that we're just in the beginning of Cheshvin and we're going we're gonna to start a bit earlier. Okay, when so, you say both, you mean one from the Friedrich Rebbe and one from the Rebbe? No, no. Aside of learning the one from the Friedrich Rebbe, 
the Rebbe himself said to my Marim, one was in the year 1962, on chapter 12, the other one was in the year 1982. We have two my Marim from the Rebbe on the previous Rebbe's chapter 12. Got it. Only two. No, two is all. So this year... Here. I mean, only two, I mean, two years, two. Correct. Okay. Even though, just to note that on the last two chapters of the previous, the previous, the Friedrich Rebbe's Mimer, we only have one Mimer from the Rebbe. Because the Rebbe did not say anything in 1989 and not in 1990. Now, the Rebbe spoke a lot. The Rebbe's whole style of teaching Torah really changed a lot after his wife passed away. That's a question for itself. I can just say one thing that saying a Mimer. The way the Rebbe said a mimer was something extraordinary. You can watch it now on video. The Rebbe would tie his hand to his chair before he would say a mimer in a discreet way, but he had a handkerchief. Parenthetically, I always joke about handkerchiefs. Whoever had a grandmother or a grandfather, I don't know how they lived with these handkerchiefs. They never washed them, and they used them, and then they put them back, and they, and they put it around their necks if the wind was blowing. Like, I always had a thing. I had a thing with a handkerchief. I left. But the Rebbe had a handkerchief, like old people, and he used that handkerchief not to blow his nose in. He used that handkerchief when, before he said a mimer, he would physically tie his hand to the chair. To ground and that's something that all of the Chabad Rabbeim did. There was never a display, a public display, of the Rebbe being channeling Ruach HaKodesh, as you see when the Rebbe says a mimer. I'll give you just a few stories, just a background to the mimer. The Rebbe had a heart attack in 1978. In 1977, I'm sorry. At the end of 1977, as people are familiar with. Or maybe it was in 1978. The Rebbe had a heart attack at the end of the 70s. And, and it was a massive heart attack. And the Rebbe's life was in real danger. For the next few weeks, the Rebbe was in his room. They made his room into a hospital. The Rebbe did not come to Fabreng on Shabbos, but he would speak Monsoy Shabbos. He was being monitored. The type of technology that the Rebbe had access to was extraordinary. So the Rebbe was able, even after he, so to say, went home on Rosh Chodesh Kislev, for the next couple of months, when the Rebbe would speak, there would be a heart monitor, and Dr. Weiss would be in the room, and they would be watching the Rebbe's heartbeat that became very irregular when he spoke. The Rebbe's speaking took a lot of physical toll on him, and there were times that they challenged him by telling him he can no longer have fabrengens. And you'll notice certain videos that Rebbe in the middle of a fabrengen would go like this to his hands. The Rebbe would put his fingers on his pulse. And that was the Rebbe's telling the doctor that I'm just fine. That's probably the Rebbe knew that he's seeing something very irregular. There's one video of that that's amazing. The Rebbe picks up his hands and he's going like this, like, I'm good. Don't worry, whatever you're seeing. He knew that he's not that well. The only time the Rebbe's heart rate was completely healthy was when he said a mimer, which is something really amazing because it took the greatest effort of the Rebbe. The Rebbe would close his eyes, people would stand up, there was a preparatory melody that people would sing prior and a melody that people would sing afterwards. And you look at the Rebbe's face, you see that the Rebbe is not here. Another thing about a mimer, we consider the Rebbe saying a mimer, like this is the closest we get to Harto to Sinai. The Rebbe was channeling the word of God, Ruach HaKodesh. In the earlier years, not by the Rebbe, by the first Chabad Rebbe, by the second Chabad Rebbe, by the third Chabad Rebbe. There were, there were, there were Hasidim that would debate the meaning of a mimer. 
The Rebbe would say something and people would debate, what did he mean? There was once where the Tzamach Tzedek said a discourse. He had seven sons. In that debate, all of the seven sons were on one side of this is what our father meant. And one chassid, Hillel Padachet, Hillel from Padach, understood that Rebbe meant something else. Which is normal. People are debating and they decided they're going to ask the Rebbe. They were not going to tell the Rebbe who said what because, you know, the father is going to side with the sons. No, no. They told the Rebbe, doesn't mean this, doesn't mean that. And the Rebbe said exactly what his son said. I, this is what it means. Hillel from Padic told the Rebbe, I don't accept. What do you mean you don't accept? The Rebbe is saying what he meant. Hillel Padic said no. He says when the Rebbe is saying, it's speaking. Now you, the Rebbe, you are interpreting it like a human being. So I have the right to disagree with you. You think it means this, I think it means that. Now, no one would have the courage to do that to the Rebbe, but we don't have a Hillel Padach. He was a great tzaddik of a Jew who understood well Hasidus, and he understood that when the Rebbe is saying a Maimer, it's God speaking through him. He's channeling something greater than him. Once you begin interpreting it, everyone can interpret it. Not anyone. People on their caliber have the right to disagree. So the Rebbe's explanation itself was not accepted by Hillel Padach. Wow. That's only by a mimer. So a mimer is a very big thing. I'm going to answer your question. When the Rebbe had passed away, the Rebbe asked two great Rabbanim during Shiva whether he has the right to continue to be the Lubavitcher Rebbe. You hear him asking that question, you'll cry, Pashit. They were shocked he's asking a question. He says, I don't know. He asked them, do I have the halachic right to sit on the chair? Because he felt that his whole right to sit to be the Lubavitcher Rebbe was because of his wife. She was the daughter of the previous Rebbe. And since she was no longer alive, he went through that. That's clear. And, and could be also saying a mimer or something that took a great toll, even though his heartbeat was okay. It was very difficult. The Rebbe did say maimarim, but it was very rare. Very rare and only twice with the melody of a mimer. Things changed afterwards. Things changed from our perspective for the good. We had more access to the Rebbe. The Rebbe spoke more often. The Rebbe was out in public more often. The Rebbe moved into 770. For him, it was very difficult. But, uh, but the way the Rebbe taught Torah changed. So that's, so first of all, I don't know. And I end with, I don't know. But uh, there's something about a mimer that makes it unique. And the Rebbe no longer did that the way he used to do it at, in the same frequency. The Rebbe did say in public when someone criticized the Rebbe for not saying my modem, the Rebbe asked that someone told him that he's not saying my modem. Did you learn all of the my modem that were said until now? Did you learn all of my talks that were said until now? But why do you always have to have something new? What's wrong with that which is new for you? And there's so much tighter from the Rebbe that is still new for us. Okay, so that's intro number one. Intro number two. I don't want to overload information. The Maimed, which is 20 chapters. So we're going to focus on chapter 12. Before we get there, we have to do two things. We have to make a recap. But instead of making a recap of the entire Maimed, I would like to spend the end of today's class making a recap on the first 10 chapters, which isn't even the chapter of this year. And then next week, we'll begin by making a recap of the this latter 20 chapters. And then we're going to go into chapter number 12. Okay. The recap, the synopsis of the first 10 chapters is a very important Chabad Hasidic idea. 
we all know, everyone understands intuitively, whether they think about it more or less, if a person believes in God, and we all believe in God, that God put me here for a purpose. The belief in God and, the belief, and purpose really come together. If there would be no God in such a foolish world, then everything is just an accident, then you don't necessarily have to attribute purpose to anything. Believing in God, in a God that creates in the present, that means that there, there, there's a God and he's running the show and including my existence here is for some divine reason. And most human beings spend a big part of their lives trying to discover generally what their unique purpose is. And even after a person feels, I understand why I came to this world, they still struggle in, am I doing exactly what I was meant to do? And even if I am, if I'm on the right track, how can I better? And that's a very healthy struggle that we should, ask, we should have and we should constantly ask ourselves, am I really fulfilling my purpose or am I not fulfilling my purpose? That's part of, of, a, healthy, of a healthy Jewish life is constantly asking oneself that question. Now, any way you want to word the general answer, and there is a general answer, the, the, the way we in Chabad word the general answer, which is true for all of us, that we are here to make this world a more godly place. We are here to make God feel more at home. Not just in the whole world, but in my home. Let me begin, in me. In me and in my environment. Accepting that as a correct answer, which it is, question will be, how do I do that? How, how can I make God feel more at home in my home? And if someone were to ask you that and give you by respecting him. 30 seconds and not more to answer, so you're saying, very good, by respecting him. So let me give, let, okay, let me clarify my question by giving you two options that were debated, not only in theology, but debated by, by Hashkafe and by approach until today. Many people view this world to be an ungodly world. Now, of course, it depends on what world you live in. Whether it is, whether it is, let's just look at nature. That there are certain parts of nature that are very cruel. When I say ungodly, like God is not here. Like when you, when you see that you have tsunamis or you have hurricanes and you have all phenomenas that nature is killing, killing. Like, where is God here? Or, and, when you look at human beings, and there are certain peoples or groups or cultures in where their choices and their behaviors is so contrary to the will of God. The world, at time, people and the world itself could appear to be, and sometimes is externally, a ungodly place, or even a not yet godly place. Now, rectifying that will always lead a person into two options. One option would be if I am living amongst very ungodly people and I want from my home to be a more godly place, then the solution must be for me to disconnect myself from my environment. I have to create my own bubble. If you're living on Mars, you got to create a bubble to live in because if you're going to go out there, you will die because of the elements. And the out there, whatever, whatever is out there may not enter your bubble. Because when a person is living in a very unholy place, you're living in a place where there's a horrible odor and you want to live in a place where it smells okay, you have to create a barrier 
in which the Ruach of where you live in doesn't mix or mingle or interact with the Ruach out there because it's going to smell up your home. The other option, which is a much more difficult option, is that the only way you can make your home a more godly place is by interacting with the environment around your home, transforming that, bringing a good odor to everywhere, ubemela, there'll be a good odor in your home as well. I'm not saying that you should begin with out there before you begin in here, but it's an approach in which you never, you never isolate yourself from, but it's a process in which you make your environment more godly by interacting with. And that's something that appears to be more difficult, and it is. And it's something that many hashkafas other than Chabad Hasidus actually advocates against, even though they don't word it that way. Like, you know, just, just look at the way after the war, how people established themselves, meaning religious Jews. So you have the majority of the religious Jews, they pick the neighborhood, go to Borough Park, go to Flatbush, go to any other Fruma city, and they, and they actually, they settled there. You, you know, you built educational institutions, you built kosher institutions and synagogues, and, 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 and everyone just packs in the same neighborhood. And of course it has to be that way, because, because if I want to be observant, I don't want my kids to be influenced by the Meshagas out there. I want to live amongst people like me. I want to create a bubble. And what I am effectively doing is, is that I'm creating some sort of spiritual ghetto to make sure that I am protected from out there. And the larger the ghetto, the more godly the world. Do you want the world to be a godly world? Okay, so the ghetto should not have 20 blocks. It should have 200 blocks. Now you have 200 blocks of godliness. Problem with that approach is, is that you are discounting or you are disregarding everything else, all else. There is a fear of interaction. There is an isolation. This goes on forever. Don't think that this is the first time now you have smartphones. You can't have a smartphone. Because don't allow into your house all of the stuff out there. And there's a truth to that. But in the bigger picture, there is a certain isolationist um, way of, I will only be able to make my corner in the world, a godly corner, if I am separated from all the rest. Ignore the darkness, suppress the darkness, live in a world where you think there is no darkness, and haha, you'll find out how not true that is, but that will take you a couple of years, and you're good. The other approach is, is interact with the darkness of the world. I think you need both. And I think you're right. Yeah, but the question will be, and you're not, I think you're, yeah, you're right, the question will be, I'm, I'm just painting a picture of the two options to be aware of the two options, and I would say that every Jew will say both, but here, the amount of, the way, the way you balance it, you will find a huge difference, whether it's spoken or not spoken, and most of it is not spoken between Chabad Hasidis and everyone else. And when people say, ah, there's the closest thing to Judaism is Chabad, when people say that, whether they mean it in a derogatory way or not, is that there are certain hashkafic ideas that we are privileged to have through Davka Chabad Hasidis that indeed is something different than the way everyone else thinks. Correct. So look what the, what the Rebbe did is the Rebbe kept on shouting for 20 years, he doesn't want to have more than a minion here in 770. And if you want to reestablish the Jewish observance throughout the world after what Hitler did and after what Stalin did, he wanted for people to go out to any corner in the world where you don't have any religious infrastructure and make it over there. 
Only Chabad did that. No other group endeavored to do that. It all comes, it comes from this Nakuda. You want to make this world a godly place? Go to the world. Go to the world. Interact with the world. And it's going to bring about challenges. And no, you won't be isolated. But as long as you know that you are there as a missionary, as a, as a shliach, as an ambassador, to bring godliness to where you are, don't worry, the world won't make you dark. You'll bring light unto the world. And when the Rebbe came out with this, these ideas and practice, everyone criticized him. How dare you take a religious couple and move them to China? No chinuch, no kosher, no nothing. The whole culture is un- ungodly, not in a negative way. No one knows about anything that's uh, holy. And your kids grow up with whom? That's that, that, this, this machloik has played itself out. And now we are so far ahead that we, the Rebbe proved that in, in actuality, we're right. I would say that a child that grew up in a home that are shluchim, in where they are the only religious couple in, the, in, in a thousand miles, are just as observant, and if not more, than a child that grew up in a neighborhood like this. Where they have the option, we're only having a from of friends. I don't even I won't even allow my friend to be a chavid with someone that's not exactly like them, because I don't want them to influence me. And um, our kids grew up in Brazil on Shabbos, not one religious friend. And what ends up happening is, is that they influence the others. Now, does that mean sending kids to public school? That's what Blumen was saying. No, no. So there's a balance. Yeah, there is a certain time and place where you have to uh, keep the environment pure 100%, 100%. But in the balance of things, the theme of the first 10 chapters is, is that it, in, to make the world a, a home for God, you cannot do it if you won't interact with the world. Now, interacting with the world doesn't mean to interact and to adopt their practices, because God forbid. So here are the key words. The key words are, you interact in the world, which will demand of you his, his kafia. His kafia means that if you don't even have something that's tempting on the table that you're not allowed to have, you don't have to um, discipline yourself, bend your desire, oh, I can't have that. You don't even know it exists. If a person were to be born in Ganeiden, there was no need of his kafia. His kafia means to bend your desire, to suppress before transforming, restraining, suppress, restraining. restraining. His kafia literally means to bend. It means everything that we said. Plus, let's use the word iskafia. His kafia is only needed if I'm exposed to something that I indeed may not do or speak or think. If everything around me is a mitzvah, I will never practice his kafia. His kafia is only needed in a dark world. People that grow up, and I know that people that grow up in a very pure world, the only options available are mitzvahs. What are we doing for Reese's? Either you're learning or you're going on mitzvahim. And, and you are in a group and you are living in an environment where people love this mitzvah and people love that mitzvah. What do you do? There's no eskafia. Or the eskafia is on things that are really minimal. But when you live in the real world and there are many things that look attractive, things that clearly God does not want us to be involved with, but you feel a, a connection to it. You feel a connection because you know of it, because you're near it. Now you got to do Eskafia. And the Mimer explains that every time we do Eskafia, we bring godliness into the world. The more Eskafia, the more you're fulfilling your mission. 
Now hold on, the balance. Oy why don't I just go into the most, God forbid, unholiest of environments and uh, do a skafia? No, no one is saying that. I'm not looking to go into a, I'll move to Vegas and I'll go into who knows what and I'll do a skafia. No, that's not the message of the mimer. But to everyone where they're at, the more you interact with others that are not yet, according to you, godly, even though you never know who's really godly, who's not godly, understand that even if I will expose myself to things that are unholy, I have the koyach and the responsibility to reject that which needs to be rejected. And the harder it is, the greater light of God I'm bringing into the world into that part of the world. I'm lighting up the darkness of the world. If I live in a bubble, I'm lighting up a lit up world, which is nice, good for you. No one is going to minimize that, but it's not the kavana, the, not the purpose. Ganeiden is already a perfect world. If God would want a perfect world, he would put you in Ganeiden. God put me here because God wants me to light up a dark world and you can only light up a dark world if you're in the dark world. If, you are, if, you're, if your room is lit, what are you going to do by lighting a candle? If you go where to where it's dark and you light a candle, whoo, you accomplished a lot. Yeah. What's the difference between kafia and bitol? The word kafia means to subdue. The 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 how will I succeed in doing kafia through bitol? Bitol means oh. it's not about me. Bitol means I'm more humble. I'm more nullified. I, my I'm 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 selfless. I'm selfless is angelic. There's less self. Because the more I'm celebrating myself, if this is what I want, there's only that much that I can tell myself no. But I need this. I want this. People that have the capacity of not focusing that much on self, so the self-desires that are not holy are a lot easier to subdue. People that are more, that, are, that have less of self are people that are more successful in Iskafia. Iskafia is not enough. Iskafia is the first step, and you can never skip the first step. But Iskafia also will not really light up the world. After a person succeeded in Iskafia, then comes step number two, which has to happen, and that is called transformation. His hapcha. His hapcha means that now that I managed to control myself, I'm not doing that. Now and only now will I have the ability to find in that something godly. It's not all bad. What is attracting me and me indulging, that's not kosher. Don't do that. But again, the moment I'm able first to separate myself and say, okay, that, this is not what Hashem wants from me. I'm not doing it. And, and people struggle with that. And, and we all struggle with that. But after the step of Iskafia, there is the next step, which is for me to look at whatever that is, and for me to acknowledge that God created that, it can't be 100% bad. There has to be some redeeming factor. And I have to somehow figure out how to use that in a good way. And that's transforming the world. Hiskafia and Hisabcha allows me to fulfill my purpose of making my world into a home for God. This is a synopsis of the first 10 chapters with a lot more with a lot of examples. And uh, God will believe it, it's enough information. I'm gonna actually next week learn a little bit of just the opening of the mimer and then go into the next 10 chapters. And then we'll focus on chapter 12 and we'll take it from there. We'll get the guys, we'll do this in depth. And if it, if it doesn't go, or like all the other series, we'll do it for a couple of weeks. 
and we'll be better ready for Yud Shvat. Any questions? Chaim. Good? I know these ideas we heard, I heard so much. It, it's so good to hear it again and again and again and again because almost every decision that we make in this context is, am I going to run away or am I going to get involved and, 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 and deal? And half of our lives is running away and there's a time to run away. The whole idea of vacation. Why do people go on vacation? Vacation means, I want to get out of this. Get me out of here. I don't want to light up this world. I'm done. I need to, I need to be. To, yeah. so, so you go to a place of light. So if it's, if it's about a physical, not a religious, if it's about there's too much physical stresses on me. So get into a place where there is no, there's no avoid. There's no inner work. There's nothing triggering you. Whatever that means. Then you'll find out, you'll all find out that no matter how much money you pay for a vacation, everything that triggered you here will trigger you, I promise you, just in a different way. But it takes us a while and they make a lot of money, so they're gonna keep on selling you, go over there, and whoo! And then finally the stay, staycation and all of the shtick, but the point is, is that vacation means I'm running away. And then when you come back, I'm coming back to do my job. And God sent us here on a job. God allows for a vacation. God actually never told us how much vacation you can take. Everyone has the right to just establish how much vacation do I need. But you have to be honest. Well, too little vacation will break you. And too much vacation will make you lazy. And we have to figure out the balance. That means even if you can afford it, then sometimes you just can't afford to do it. Which might also be a blessing at that time. Which probably is. But uh, that's more or less our lives. I know Shabbos in the week, we have a concept that 15% is a healthy amount of, of escape. In a good way. On Shabbos, we're going away from the world. We're not doing any work. We're out. 15% to, to 85%. That's a good rule in life. And if you take too much rest, you'll become lazy. Too little rest, you're going to get burnt out. That's a general balance. Now, Shabbos is holy. But when it comes to other areas in life, I think that's a good balance. Even like you said, how much... Pure, how much that depends, what age. The Rebbe said that the younger, the more careful you have to be. They should be in a purer environment, relative. And the older we are, then we don't have the right to just be vacationing. God gave, gave me life. I got to do my job. I got to go work. How do you know that balance, though? You'll figure it out. You'll see yourself. This is not working. Many people, they get involved in the world and they, and they find out that there's something of the world that got them. Not to, many people, all people. And I have to remove myself sometimes. Like the worst scenario will be a person eh, becomes an addict. So if you're an addict to gambling, first physically go away from gambling places. Not that the, the, the problem is still there, but just you have, to, you have to get out of that environment. And such a person might have to be get out of that environment for a long time. I think every case is a case. I and mean, we... Most people, they go through life and they bring a lot of light and they also, they adopt some darkness. And one doesn't take away from the other, but you know, different, some people have to be told that in this area, that's not your mission. You're going to get involved in this part of the world. You won't, oh, they, you won't do a scoff. As we know, stay away from this, stay away from that. Some people will figure that out. Just it takes a long time to figure that out. When we're younger, we think, no, I just, I just, I was not moderate. I'll be moderate. Some people drink too much. Or some people drinking a little bit is not good for them. So you tell, so you tell them, what I mean? We're not for abstinence. We're for getting involved in Skafia. But the, the, you in this area, Skafia is not working for you. Do Skafia in other areas. You know, it just takes a long time to figure that out. And hopefully on the way, we don't hurt too many people that much. Including ourselves. You know, and that's life. That's everyone's life. 
here, a little bit here, a little bit there, and hopefully we do more good than bad. And, and when we finally figure it out, God says, okay, now you're coming back home. Mm-hmm. So no one is rushing to figure it out. We should have long, healthy lives Amen. and struggle with these things forever. Yeah. Um, is it Bussi or Bassa Lagami? Bussi. Bussi. It's, okay. it's Bay, Bay's Aleph Sof Yud, uh-huh. and there's a comet under the Bay's, mm-hmm. and there's a Chilik under the Sof. Bossy okay. means to come. Means I came back. Okay, Lagani to my garden. I came back to my garden. Yeah. Okay, and the next question is: If someone refers to Bossy Lagani, is it only the Friedrich Rebbe's? <clears throat> good questions. Very Lema, good. Very or is good. including the Babjer Okay, so Bossy Lagani are words that were written by King Solomon. He wrote mm-hmm. a few books that made themselves made their way into Scripture. Mm-hmm. One of them is known as Shira Shirim. Mm-hmm. And Shira Shirim Pedikei has the verse, Basi Legani Achoisi Kala. I came back to my garden, to my sister, to my bride. Mm-hmm. These are the words that God said, as we'll continue next week, when he came down to give the Torah. So uh, the Friedrich Rebbe was expounding. So the that? previous Rebbe was expounding that verse. So Basa Legani is universal. It's a Pasuk in, in, in uh, okay, Shira Shirim. Lubavitcher is referred to Basa Legani. Who is it? Is it so, they know, so they know, or? so they know, so they know. So the Friedrich Rebbe has one mimer. Again, mm-hmm. it was said in 1923, but it was printed again mm-hmm. in 1950. It really, again, just go back. It was printed in four booklets. Only the first was for the 10th of Shvat. Mm-hmm. But it's all one theme. All the 20 is one bigger theme. Basilagani of the previous Rebbe, mm-hmm. and then we have um, 38 Maimarim of the Rebbe. So that's included when people talk about Basilagani. Basilagani means everything, everything. or they're going to say, they'll ask, the Friedrich Rebbe's Maimar, and if it's the Rebbe's Maimar, from which years? Okay. And then every year now, like Tavshon Pei Beis, the Rebbe's physically not here, Tavshon Pei Beis, this year's Maimarim in plural is going to be Tavshon Chav Beis, Tavshon Men Beis, 1960. Two, 1982, and now 2020. And also, what is Two. the purpose of the whole, of the learning? What is, is it for specific? The purpose is, is that the Rebbe wants us to celebrate the day of the passing of the Friedrich Rebbe and the day that he became Rebbe mm-hmm. by focusing on the bigger mission. Mm-hmm. And the bigger mission of the Rebbe is to bring Mashiach or to bring God into the entire world. Mm-hmm. And you got to know how to do it. How do you do it? Right. Tell the person, okay, go bring God into the world. How do you do that? Now you can answer by learning Torah and keeping mitzvahs, but in the context of what we spoke out today, this, this is the machloikas. Uh-huh. Either the way most other people adopt it, and we say wrongfully by creating ghettos, mm-hmm. and the whole theme of the Rebbe was never in a ghetto. Mm-hmm. Be in the world, which will demand of you, which will bring certain challenges, but only that will allow you to fulfill your mission. And you do it by... Removing yourself by not getting involved in the parts of the world that you are in touch with. Don't get involved in a non-kosher way. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to have a lot of escafia. Mm-hmm. When you go into a non-kosher restaurant, you need to have escafia. If you stay out of it, you don't need any escafia. <laughs> so when we advocate for religious people never to isolate themselves from other people, not from other Jews, not from other goyim, be involved in. Mm-hmm. Now you have to exercise the power of escafia. And then you will have to find a redeeming factor in every part of this world and use it in the service of God. Hiskafya and Hesapcha. And this is learned once, once a year? Or something, no one learns this every day. It's not every day. Uh, well, no, in Lubavitch, it's more or less, so I guess, there, there, there are some greater people 
who, who in the world of Torah find for themselves something that really speaks to them, and they learn it very often. Mm-hmm. It can be anything. I'm not talking about those people. For most people like us who want to learn more, so there is what I like learning is what I opt, what I choose to learn. Mm-hmm. And then there is like the Parsha of the week. So uh, we are learning Parsha's Lech Lecha. What, Parsha's Chayisot is not part of the Torah? No, it's part of the Torah, but this week, uh, people. So in the Chabad Labavitch world, coming close to Yutzvat, which begins normally Yutas Kislev, we're, we're starting a little bit earlier, people begin to focus on Basa Legani right. to get ready for that date by learning the Maimonim that Rebbe said for that year. And then they don't, after that date, they don't really... After that date... So much, so the next year... So it depends on the person, but right. most people are that way. It's like after you took a test, right. you, for, you forget about the topic like a day later, like an yeah, hour later, you, you, you forget. Yeah. yeah, that's sad. And then you have some people that remember, and then you have unique people that if there's a certain part of Torah that they need to learn a lot, mm-hmm. I know certain people that say a Patek of chapter every day, the same Patek, Mamish. There's certain people that say the beginning of chapter 41 every day because they, they understand that they need that. They need that message. They're not getting new information, but they're reconnecting themselves with old, old information, which is also very powerful. So I'm sure there are Hasidim that learn Basilagani very often, but these, right. these are exceptional people. Right, okay, got it. Thank you. What, what happened in Shvat? Why did everyone pass away in Shvat? And why did the Bria pass away on the same day as his grandmother? In every family, there's different dates when people pass away. Really? Right? So it just, it was also just born. Let's go to birthdays. Like we're younger, we're from the younger people. I can say that. I know by us, by many families, certain times of the year, a lot of people are born. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that's true. What was special about Shvat? Is there something with Shvat that... So what we say is, is that Shvat is the 10th month of the year, and the 10th is holy. You can find that for the 9th. I know that. And for the 11th, which is fine. But uh, 10 is a complete number. You, Baruch Hashem. Oh, really? Uh, the November is considered a... I mean, not November. November is Oh, Kislev. Kislev, it's a light. Oh, my God. And then... Okay. Tubishvat. What about the 8th month? The 8th month is amazing. 8. 8, eight is big. I'm saying every, every number is amazing. Okay, it's important that. It's not a gimmick. It's that... These are things that are beyond our control. This is pure Hashgacha Pratis. And, uh, yeah. and Friedrich Rebbe and his grandmother, they had obviously like a crazy connection. Yeah. Possibly on the same day. I yeah. didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. Until yeah. Now. yeah. I mean, he clear, clear that amongst the Chabad Rebbe's, we know the relationship that he had with his grandmother is very special. Also by the fact that she raised him. She mamish raised him. And she was married to the Rebbe, Rebbe Marash. Marash. Uh-huh. Was she was the second person? wife of the Rebbe Marash. And was he also very close with his grandfather? or? We know that Samach Tzedek was close to the Alter Rebbe because he was raised by his grandfather's mother passed away. He was raised by... He had a, he had a father figure and the Friedrich Rebbe he was raised by his grandmother. Interesting. Something unique, something unusual. Had he passed away, the Friedrich Rebbe? Okay, so the Rebbe said many times that for many years, especially after 1945, the Rebbe says it by the laws of nature, he shouldn't have been here. Mm-hmm. So there's many reasons why he passed away. No, but like we don't make he... autopsies. We know that the Friedrich Rebbe, right before he passed away, woke up in the morning, he asked for a nurse. He had a nurse to put, him, put on his Shabbos garments to wheel him into his office. He sat in his office, he rearranged the table. Wow. And he was asked to take back to his bed. And as he was going back into his bed, he pointed at the watch and he passed away wow. like that. Mm-hmm. He just, wow. he dropped into his bed. 
And that no, and that office, the Rebbe said no one moved anything since when he passed away. That clock is not the same time. There are stories from many other Chabad Rebbes that before they passed away, they pointed to a clock. And there is a story, I think, with the Baal Shem Tev or a big tzaddik, that he said that I will pass away when the clock will stop. In other words, they were very, these are people that really used every moment. They, they understood that they are here until here. They, they got it. They got the, the, the value of time. Can you imagine? He, Mama, she said he passed away when they were laying him back down. And the last thing he did is, he was very expressive with his eyes. So you yes. think like he was saying this that is he my lived thing. to the last moment. Mamish, like, mamish. And his office was upstairs? The office? Uh, office is upstairs. Mm-hmm. The Rebbe's office right now that many people are familiar with, when the Rebbe came in with the Rebbe's in 1941, where did they move into? Into that office. That office was the, was the Rebbe's house for a couple of weeks. There was a bathroom in there. A stama shower. Our Rebbe. Our Rebbe, yeah. And after they got him an apartment, or the Rebbe got himself an apartment, that be, remained his office. So the Rebbe moved into that office, and after the Rebbe passed away, the Rebbe moved back into the office. The home became like a public home, Mamish, and the Rebbe lived in his office. He also he saved time. The Rebbe was so good with time, like just the best role model that, that anyone could know. Now the Rebbe, we should be careful, like the Rebbe never took vacation. Most people will get burnt out. The Rebbe had this discipline, like that was beautiful. And he wasn't rigid. He was calm. Most people that are rigid with time, they get very nervous because right, right, they. Right. It wasn't that way. When he never wanted to give out something, he went until the end. And if more people came, and he did it in a way that he gave calm, which was godly. So there was no pressure, but there was pressure. He used, he used this time. He was very punctual, that ever. So punctual. Always available. For 44 years, always available. Anything you had a question, he was there to answer it for you, always, day and night. There were three hours in the day that normally the Rebbe was not approached. Mamash, that's it, from think, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. By the way, I think that's 15%. I do the calculation in 24 hours, that comes out something like this. Could, could be, that's what it is. 20. It's amazing. From 6 to 9? Yeah. Other than that, every hour, on top of the hour, there was another secretary that would bring to the Rebbe all the notes, on top of every hour. It's amazing. And if there's an emergency, they would put it under his door. You wrote in something, you got an answer. Sometimes the Rebbe didn't answer, but the Rebbe read your note. Many times the Rebbe didn't answer. And you needed to figure out why is he not answering me. Then you would insist. It wouldn't help. You have to fix something. How do you feel people can get answers best nowadays? I think the best way is to read the Rebbe's letters. To read it, to learn them. To learn every day ten letters. Because the Rebbe, you get his... There's a system, there's a, there's a system now of his approach. That will be the best way to get the Rebbe's answers. All right, Yidin, Atkan. What's the best way to get the Rebbe's answers? To continuously, to continuously study the Rebbe's letters. Oh, okay, oh, I do that. Yeah, everyone is saying hi, Ricky. It's a, you're, you're, Hi, Ricky. Hi. We love you. Yeah. Love you.